So, welcome again today for all those that are with us, and uh, just appreciate you folks. I just want you to know that. So today, I want to speak about a subject that is something that's given me a hard time all week, actually, um, because this is a difficult uh, topic, I believe. We're going to be talking about taking up our cross today. Now, we've been um, studying this concept over the past few weeks. We, we started um, in talking about the cost of discipleship, and this is all in the books of Matthew and Mark and Luke, but what I'm talking about today specifically in Matthew and Mark, but we talked about what it cost us to follow Christ. And this is a, a cost that Jesus identified as a cost to follow him. And then last week we talked about the really interesting rebuke that Jesus gave to Peter when Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. And he called Peter Satan. Um, and that kind of a, was a shocker. But we talked about that last week. And so immediately after this conversation that Jesus is, is talking to his disciples about and those following, he goes right into this discussion about what it means to take up our cross. So it's found in, Ma- in Mark chapter 8. This is text that we're going to use today, beginning at verse 34. So would you stand with me as we read God's scripture together? It's in your Bible, and it's going to be on the screen as well. Mark chapter 8, beginning at verse 34, Jesus says this. He says, Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples. Let me stop real quick. Notice what he's doing. He's calling the crowd to him and his disciples. So this message that we're talking about today is not just the pastors, not just the teachers, not just the leaders. It's to all people, the crowd and the disciples, right? So he said to them, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Let's pray. Father, this is a very difficult passage. It's one that I'll be very honest with. As you know, I struggle with. What does it really mean for me to take up my cross and to follow you? And I pray, Father, that you just give me the words to speak, and I pray that you anoint whatever is said today that is from your words, not my ideas. And I pray, God, you open the ears and the eyes of those here as well, and for those watching online, possibly. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So obviously, this are, these are some hard things, but I believe that we're going to find some good truths here as we work through this. So Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to be, a, a want is a desire. You're not forced to follow Jesus, but you want to. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. You know, it's one thing if you're paid to be his disciple because as an employee, your employer pays you and when he pays you, he can demand some things of you because he's paying you a wage. 
So therefore, he can say, as a result of the wage that I'm paying you, you must do what I tell you to do. But nobody's paying you to follow Jesus. But yet Jesus still gives a demand. Even in your volunteering to follow him, he says, you must take up your cross and follow me. Do you you see now why I'm struggling with this? Does somebody want to come up and preach this for me, please? Rip, come and preach this for me. It's a lot easier if somebody else preaches. Or Leland or Eric, you can preach this. You've done this before. <laughs> so let's, uh, let's dig into this a little bit. First of all, let's talk about what Jesus does, doesn't mean when he says this. What he doesn't mean is that this is not a specific burden that you must carry. This isn't like you have bad eyesight, so that's your cross to carry. Or you have a thankless job, so that's your cross to carry. Or you have a strained relationship or a physical illness. That's not what he's talking about. That's not what he's talking about when he says pick up your cross because that's something you have to bear. That's not what he's talking about. Because we can take, we can have self-pitying pride that says, oh, it's only my, it's my cross. It's my cross. And it can become all about me and pity me because I have a cross to carry because I have a, a woe is my life. That's not what he's talking about. He's also not talking about a vow of poverty or self-abuse where you would misuse yourself or, or any other means that says you can't enjoy life. This isn't a vow of self-pity. This isn't a vow of I have to be, see how, how bad I can be and how angry I can be at myself. Holiness is not based on how poor or how depraved one is. Just to understand that. Living a, a successful life for Jesus is not, a, is not about how much we can not enjoy this life. <laughs> we can enjoy this life and still take up our cross. So let's understand what that means. There were many wealthy and prosperous people in the Bible. So you don't have to be poor to be holy. Dr. Glenn Sunshine, who is a historical Bible scholar and a teacher at the Colson Fellows Program, it's interesting, I ran across this quote from him. I, I know Dr. Glenn, Dr. Sunshine. I, I've sat at the table with him at some of the Colson Fellows programs when I was going through this a few years ago. And so I know this man personally, so to hear him quote this is kind of interesting. But he, he says this. He says, although Scripture has some very harsh things to say about wealthy, about the wealthy, this does not mean that all of them are evil or under divine judgment. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Job were rich and yet were also approved by God. Just as poverty doesn't guarantee virtue, wealth does not guarantee vice. It's interesting, and it's good that we know that. The Apostle John differentiates the life that Satan would have a believer to believe as he describes Jesus being the good shepherd and we, his followers, being the sheep. And he says this in this passage I'm going to read, that that God wants to give his followers a good life, a life of provision and satisfaction. Not necessarily a life of no needs or, no de- or a lack of desires, but he wants to give us a good life. John chapter 10, verses 9 through 10, Jesus says, I am the gate. Those who come in through me will be saved. 
They will come and go freely and will find good pastures. Here's, here's the point. The thief's purpose or the devil's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. My purpose is to give them, who's them, you and I, a rich life and a satisfying life. So God wants to help you to be satisfied. He doesn't want you to be self-abusive. It's clear here that the Christian life is to be one of abundance and able to enjoy the good things of God's creation. Yet, even in that, we have some constraints that we have to live with because God's creation isn't exactly what God created it to be originally. Dr. Sunshine goes on to say this. He says, Scripture is very clear that the wealthy have obligations to the poor that God takes very seriously. You see, sin has destroyed the perfection of what God originally created so many years ago. And if we're going to be a part of God's creation as part of his family, we have some responsibilities, as Dr. Sunshine started to say, that we who have received God's mercy and his grace and his forgiveness, we have a responsibility to tend and take care of those that are brokenhearted. We all go through seasons where we're brokenhearted. We have a responsibility to help people that maybe are going through a tough time. We should be a hospital for those that are sick. We shouldn't kick them when they're down. We should help them get back up. So the purpose, the purpose of the cross is redemption, not punishment. The purpose of the cross is redemption, not punishment. And if we're, the only way we're going to properly understand what the cross is is we have to understand its purpose. God did not cause Jesus to get on a cross because he was punishing Jesus. Jesus hung on a cross because he was redeeming mankind. And as we take up our cross, we have to keep that in mind, that God's not asking us to get on a cross ourselves because he's punishing us. It's because it's our part of being part of the redemption plan of Christ. Jesus had to bear his cross on Calvary to bring redemption into a falling world. So what this means then is that for us to take up our cross and to follow Jesus, it's not all about you. It's not about how much you have to suffer. It's not about how much you have to give up. It's not about how much I have to feel guilty because I have a lot or I have nothing. You see how easily the enemy can play with our feelings here? He can make me feel guilty because I have money in my bank account. He can make me feel guilty because I have abundance. Or he can make me feel self, woe is me, because I have nothing. Right? Well, let me just tell you, bearing your cross has nothing to do with how much you have or don't have. It's not about that. Really what it is, not being about me, it's about how I look at you and how I can look at what God wants me to do to help you. It's about how I'm to love people the way Jesus loved people as he willingly hung on the cross. Just as you're not forced 
to serve Jesus, he wasn't forced to go to the cross. He went willingly. He volunteered, if you will, just as we volunteer to follow him, yet there was a great cost to his volunteering, and there's going to be a cost to our volunteering as well. So that's what we're going to talk about. So what does the cross symbolize? Let's talk about that for a minute. First of all, we, we all know what a cross is, and, and we have a sense of appreciation for it. Many, many people, and I'm not saying this is bad, but many people wear it as jewelry. Many people will hang a cross around their neck, or they'll put a cross on their uh, under car or or whatever and, and crosses are very popular we see it on, on most churches right and we see it in many places it's a very common religious symbol all around the world crosses are very common but to properly understand what a cross really stands for we need to go back to the time frame in which jesus is speaking today we are post jesus set crucifixion Right? He died already for us. He's already hung on the cross for us some 2,000 years ago. But at the time that Jesus was speaking, he hadn't been to the cross yet. He was still alive. And so for him to say, you must pick up your cross and follow me, they were looking at people like, what do you mean? Uh, what, what are you talking about a cross for? Because in the day that they were talking about, it wasn't what we th- think a cross to be. You see, the cross today, we celebrate as a symbol of our religion. But in Jesus' day, the cross was a symbol of death. There was nothing good about a cross. In fact, according to the National Library of Medicine, this is what a crucifixion is really about. Crucifixion was considered one of the most brutal and shameful modes of death. The Romans perfected crucifixion. Crucifixion in Roman times was applied mostly to slaves, disgraced soldiers, Christians, and foreigners, and most serious criminals. Death occurs usually after six hours to four days. Death was probably commonly precipitated by cardiac arrest, severe pain, body blows, and suffocation. Most people died on the cross because they suffocated on the cross. Because you think about what's happened. You are either, in, for Jesus, he was actually, spikes were driven through his wrist and his, and his ankles, his feet. Sometimes they just, roped, they just roped them, okay, not necessarily with spikes. But either way, you are suspended, hanging on a cross with your arms outstretched, and gravity pulls your body down so that after hours of there, you are tired of picking yourself up off your feet to get a breath and you end up suffocating, and it could take up to four days. So it was a very painful, very torturous death. The intent of this type of death by the Romans was to make the victim an example to others because quite often they would sacrifice them, they would put them on a cross in a public place, and that people would travel back and forth, and they would see these men hanging on a cross as an example of what not to do. That was their purpose with it. And they were there to make a public spectacle of them so that everyone would experience their shame, their suffering, and their embarrassment. Today, when we wear a cross around our neck as a piece of jewelry, do we really understand what the cross means? You see, for the people of that day, for Jesus to describe them that they are to follow them and take up his cross would be 
today's vernacular, somebody go get a, an electric chair and put that around your neck. <laughs> because that's really what it was symbolized. It really symbolized a death of a criminal. There was nothing glorious about the cross. It was a horrific death. And it was only really those for those that were really bad people. Jesus, by his rights and by the rights of his disciples, and even those followed him would, that him, would say, Jesus, why do you, are you talking about a cross? Because you're not the type of guy that should die on a cross. You're not that type. So what do you, why? Why are you talking about this? So it was difficult in the least for these people to recognize and understand. So what was Jesus really saying? What he's saying here is that it is important for us to understand the intensity of the cross so that we can appreciate the intentionality of what it means for us to take it up. We have to understand the intensity so we can understand the intentionality of the cross. This isn't something to be taken lightly. So there's three major elements that crucifixion entails. Number one, opposition. Number two, shame and suffering. And number three, ultimate death. Let's keep in mind that as we talk about taking up our cross, it's not about us. It's about how Christ's followers can show others the way to his cross by the way that we live and bear our cross. So remember, it's never about us. It's always about glorifying Christ and it's showing others how to do the same thing. So as we go over this conversation, keep that in mind, that it's not about you and me how much we have to suffer, but rather it's about how much we glorify Christ as we bear our cross for him. So let's talk about opposition. I think we can all appreciate the opposition between good and evil, right and wrong, God and Satan. Right? I mean, I think it's pretty obvious, it's pretty natural for things that have opposite motivations with opposite end goals to be in opposition to each other. Ever since Satan was cast out of heaven because of the pride that entered his life, he was opposed to God and everything God stands for. So for Jesus to be opposed by Satan and the world that Satan controls... It's not a hard concept for, uh, for us to understand. It's not hard for us to understand that Jesus had opposition. But do we understand that for those that choose to be on God's, God's side today, for you and I that willingly claim to be Christians, do you understand that we're also going to have opposition? The same Satan, the same enemy that opposed Christ, if Christ lives in you, will oppose you. Now, if you're a poser, if you're not really a Christian, if you're a claiming one to be a Christian, then you probably, he probably won't oppose you because you're already on his side. But for those that truly are a believer of Christ, recognize that you are going to have opposition in this life. And it's going to come from multiple sources. Satan may come to us in a very, a very gentle and even a very humorous way. I mean, we've all seen the depiction of Satan as a little guy in a red jumpsuit with, you know, ears, on, or, you know, uh, or horns coming out of his head with a pitchfork and, you know, the old uh, uh, way that um, 
uh, Tim Wilt, Flip Wilson used to say, the devil made me do it, you know, and all this other stuff, and how, how humorous the enemy can become. See, he doesn't really care how you think of him. You can either get overly concerned about him, or you can not take him serious at all, but in any way, shape, or form, he'll take it to get into your life, to get his ugly head into your life before you sense the opposition that he really brings. But recognize that Satan will always bring you opposition. He will never be your friend. He will never lead you down a rosy path to give you a good outcome. He may take you down the path to, to, to kill you, but never to give you a good outcome. So when you stand for Christ unashamedly, when you stand for Christ unashamedly, you can expect to be opposed by the world that opposed Christ. Remember, the world is legally Satan's today. It's legally his. He is the ruler and principal of the of the air today. He is the, the rightful owner of this world that we live in. So we're not living in friendly territory. We're living in enemy territory right now. We're across the enemy lines. Ephesians chapter 6 tells us how we live here. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. I love your analogy, Rip. You have a dented shield. A dented shield indicates that you've been through the battle. A nice shiny shield says, well, you haven't done anything yet. You haven't been there yet. It's okay to have a dented shield. Verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day, not if, not if, when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. Now, what this, what this verse so well points out that maybe we don't appreciate but we must recognize that enemy, our enemy, is not people. Our enemy is not people. It's not the person sitting next to you, not the person driving the car ahead of you that's doing, going too slow. You know, it's not, the, it's, it's not all that stuff. The enemy is not people. So as we stand against the opposition of the fallen people in this world, because people can fall, but re- we have to recognize that it's our job that we show them the love of Jesus in the midst of the opposition. They are not our enemy. Satan is. So our cross can be and is to show them love in the midst of our standing against the evil that they represent. Our cross may be that we stand against them, loving them in the midst of, our, of the opposition. We often find it way too easy to define opposition as people. But if we can look at the issues that the way God does, if we can look at the opposition is not against the people, but it's against the spirit of evil that's in them, it's much easier for us to do what we're supposed to do. Because our cross is also to do, as Matthew tells us in verse 43, he says, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's what it said. That's obvious. It's easy to do. Love your neighbor, 
hate your enemy, isn't it? I mean, we could stop right there and say, yep, I could do that. <laughs> but read on. <laughs> Verse 44 says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Now we're getting a little, now we're getting in a little personal here, aren't we? No, it says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. How hard is that? Seriously. That's hard. In fact, I think this could be one of the hardest things Jesus might ask us to do. To actually love those who give you the hardest time in life. You all have them, don't you? Just think about the hate and the division in our country right now. How easy is it is to pile on the political rhetoric of how evil the other party is. No matter what party you're on, no matter if you're the left or the right, there is hate from one party to the next. It doesn't matter which party you want. In fact, this is, I would say this is unprecedented in American history. Yeah, the Civil War was hard. I get that. There was a lot of hate there too. But I think we are so much beyond that. I think we are so beyond the, 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 the division between the right and the left that it is almost unconceivable to think that we could ever agree on anything anymore. Do you see it to be evil? Do you see the hate there to be evil? See, we're becoming a divided house. And the Bible says that in Matthew 12, 25, it says, Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. Every city or household divided against itself will not stand. Do you see America potentially on the verge of falling because we're divided? Yeah. This is real stuff, guys. We're at a, we're at a, a precipice of not coming back. We are at a tipping point, if you will, as Jimmy Evans uses the term. We are at a tipping point where we've tipped so far, we're not coming back. The only way we're going to get out of this is through Jesus, through the rapture, through the tribulation, through what's coming, what the Bible says is coming. And I do believe that we are in the last days. And I do believe that this is appointed by God, that this is something that we probably aren't going to turn around. But we have to take our stand and love people in the process of the evil that's around us. What better testimony to the love of Jesus than for us to bear our cross of being a restorer of relationships. Man, bring that into your house. Bring that into your circle of friends. Have you ever been hurt by people? Have you ever been shamed and caused to suffer by people? And this takes me to my second point. Shame and suffering is another point of the cross. See, another aspect of what it means to die on a cross is intense shame and suffering. The intent of the Roman guards was to do everything in their power to shame and ridicule the prisoner. That was their, that was their job. <laughs> That's what they were told to do. Scourge them, ridicule them, mock them, shame them. We see it in Matthew chapter 27, 
27 through 31, this is what happened to Jesus. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. This was not a pretty scene. The cross is very gory. It's very evil. After they did that, then they made him carry his cross through the streets with the full intention of all the people witnessing his shame and embarrassment because of what he was about to be, how he was going to be killed. They stripped him naked, hung him on a cross to hang there for hours and possibly days. See, this is not an honorable way to die. There is no honor hanging on a cross. It's very shameful. So now the question has, we have to ask ourselves, when we take a look at all that, and we take a look at what Jesus stands for, here's a question for us. Are we ashamed of Jesus? Are we ashamed for what he stood for? Are we ashamed for the righteousness and holiness that he stands for? How easy is it for us to run away from our profession of faith when the world who is opposing him, begins to oppose us. How easy for us to say, I'm ashamed of what Jesus stood for. Mark chapter 8, 38, this is part of our text. It says, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, do you see that? Ashamed of me living in the world that is opposed to Christ an adulterous and sinful generation. That means it's a a generation that's controlled by the enemy. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. If you're ashamed of Jesus, he'll be ashamed of you. Reaping and sowing, right? Sowing and reaping. So part of us taking up our cross and following Jesus is our unashamed willingness to stand for God's love, holiness, and righteousness, just as Jesus did when he hung naked on the cross. He was willing to take the shame, are we? Are we willing to be shamed with Jesus? See, there's a very important point, a very important point here, and this is this. What was Jesus' attitude as he was hanging on the cross. What was his attitude towards the people that killed him? Was it one of anger and vengeance, knowing that he would be able to punish them later? <laughs> he Knowing that he would be able to get back at them later? So he said, just wait, guys. Just wait. Your time's coming, man. You think you got me now, but just wait. Was that the attitude that Jesus had? Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Can you believe that? Can you believe that he would have the audacity to forgive those that not just persecuted him, but hung him on the cross? 
You see, in the face of intense shame and suffering, Jesus' attitude was one of forgiveness towards all those that did those unjustifiably bad things to him. So what can we learn about this? What can we learn about our need to forgive? How did Jesus teach us to pray? Do you remember the Lord's Prayer? What does it say about forgiveness? Matthew six twelve through 15. This is part of the Lord's Prayer. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive you of your sins. Wow. Do you like forgiveness? Is it fun to do? Or is it hard? You see, forgiveness doesn't say what they're doing was right. They hurt you. It doesn't say that it's okay that they hurt you. It is saying, I forgive you, I release you of the debt that you have to pay me in order to pay me back. It's not easy to do, folks. Could that be how we take up our cross? By forgiving people as Jesus forgave those that persecuted him? Can that be a way that we have to take up our cross? By forgiving people? You see, when you forgive people, so many good things come into your life. When you forgive people, it releases you of the debt. And it also releases you of shame and guilt. Because when I can say, truly forgiving a person, then the next time I see them on the street, I don't go to the other side of the street because I'm mad at them. When I see them in a grocery store, I don't duck down another aisle. No, when I see that person, I can look them in the eye and say, I love you. I don't like you, (laughs) but I love you. No, really, we can say that. Listen, just because you forgive someone doesn't mean they're going to be your best friend. It's okay to have boundaries. It's okay to protect yourself, but just don't hold a grudge because a grudge is a root of bitterness, and once bitterness sets in, then you're hopeless. So forgiveness says, I forgive you. What you did to me was wrong. You just don't have to pay me back. But is it okay if we don't have dinner tomorrow? (laughs) And maybe when you truly forgive, maybe dinner will come later. But don't worry about that, right? And here's the thing about forgiveness is that just because you forgive someone doesn't take away the consequence of the actions. Jesus forgave the men that hung him on the cross, but he still died. He still died. And so the third element of the cross is death. The ultimate purpose of the Romans' crucifixion is death. To kill somebody. Once you're hung on the cross, once you're impaled on the cross, you're not coming down until you're dead. They would post a guard there if it took four days. They would post a guard there until you died before they would get you off the cross. So there was no coming back from this. You see, on that day when Jesus died, everyone thought that they had defeated Christ and his cause because he was dead. The Jewish leaders thought they won. Satan even thought he won initially. 
until he saw the heavens opened up and all the grand things that happened in the heavenly realms. But thank God that that wasn't the end of the story for us. Three days later, Jesus rose from the dead and he defeated death and he lives today. So here is the point. Satan used the cross to bring death. Jesus used the cross to bring life. Satan's point was to kill and destroy. God turned it around on him for life, eternal. He took everything the cross was supposed to represent and turned it from death to life, a symbol of death to a symbol of life. So for, to properly understand this here, again, we need to see the big picture of what the cross really means. Jesus going to the cross resulted in something much greater than anything life could have represented. He couldn't have done anything greater on earth than to go to the cross. Even Jesus couldn't have done anything greater than dying for us. That was the only way that mankind could have been redeemed is if Jesus would willingly have died. So there's no other shortcuts here. That's why we talked about last week, get thee behind me, Satan, because it was Satan's attempt to keep Jesus from the cross by saying in the desert, if you bow down to me, I'll give you what I legally own. But it was his attempt to keep Jesus from the cross. That's why when Peter said, no, Jesus, you don't have to die, that's why Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, because he was giving Jesus the same temptation that Satan had given him. There's no other way around it. Jesus had to endure a season of death that entailed great opposition, great shame and suffering, and ultimate death that resulted in the, in, in the consequence of eternal life. That's amazing. And this is why I love Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. I love this passage. So I use it as much as they can. <laughs> it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked off for us, keeping our eyes focused on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Here it is. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider this. Consider him who endured such opposition. See the words? Shame, opposition, all that, death. You see that? From sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. That will have perseverance, right, Pastor Rip? So in your struggle against sin, you, will not, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So what is Jesus really saying here? Jesus took what was intended for him to be misery and death, and because he could see the end result, he could see the big picture that there would be joy given to him through us that had been redeemed, that through that he was able to endure the cross. Amazing. I love that passage. So what the cross was intended to do to bring a painful death really ends in life, an eternal life for us. So what do we do with all this? He says, consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In other words, you hold the course. Stay where you're at. Keep bearing your cross. Keep living from Jesus. Because in your struggle, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Not yet. Not yet. I pray we never do. But we may have to. We're to be encouraged to take up our cross and follow Jesus in the sacrifice of the seasons of our death. 
We'll have seasons of death in our life as we die to ourselves. And if we do that, we'll have eternal life. See, this is the foundational belief that leads to action in the life of a believer. This isn't passive here. The main point of Jesus' teaching is even though the requirements are hard, he's already accomplished them. He's already gone through it. So he's not asking you or I to do anything that he wasn't willing to do. His intention is to instruct those who want to follow him on how to do it. And this is how we do it. It involves self-denial. It is an active involvement in choosing, here it is, that we're choosing to walk towards death of self in order to gain Christ. There are things we have to die to to ourselves. He says in verse 23, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life from me will find it. Well, how does that happen? Well, again, let's look at the big picture. The big picture is that we have to take up our cross during seasons of death just as Jesus had to pick up his cross in a season of death in his life. It's, listen, this is, where the lie, this is where the enemy lies to us. He will make it a whole life of death. No. No, we can have great seasons of peace. We can have great seasons of joy. We can have great seasons of enjoying life, but every once in a while, there's going to come that season of death that says, I have to say no to myself. No, I can't do that. No, I'm not going to bow to that idol. No, I'm not going to um, give in to that temptation. I'm going to deny myself sometimes the pleasures I have to. That's kind of what fasting's about, right? Fasting is not fun. But yet it's a time of denial of ourselves so that we can gain Christ. So this isn't a life of ease. At the same time, it's not a life of 100% turmoil and anxiety either. There's going to be seasons of death in your life, but when you take those seasons of death, you will have seasons of you will have an eternal life if you're willing to go through them. That's the big question mark. Are you willing to go through the seasons of death in your life so that you can have eternal life? Jackie, would you come please? As we do this, I will promise you, because the word promises you, that you can have an abundant life, a life so abundant living for Christ, even though that results or requires some death on your part, you'll have such an abundance of life that there'll be nothing in this world that can compare against it. What the devil would have you to think is that if you have to die, that you will be defeated, that God will be against you because you have to deny yourself, that God's punishing you. No, he's not punishing you. But we have to know that our redemption and our abundance comes as we take up our cross to follow Jesus. Our redemption comes through Jesus' cross, but I have to take up my cross too. Not that I have to die for my salvation. Jesus already did that. I'm just now taking up my cross to be obedient to him, and with that comes fullness of life. So we have to recognize who our real opposition is and we need to learn to love people while they are opposing us 
We have to go the extra mile sometimes and to restore broken relationships with friends and family members that have hurt or offended. Take up your cross. We have to deny ourselves of our rights, of being right for the sake of being right. And sometimes just learning how to forgive people so that we can be forgiven by our Father in heaven. You know, and here's the thing, guys. Take in, remember, Jesus says, take up your cross. He's not telling you to pick up my cross. Pick up, it's a personal thing. I, I've just listed a few of the things. But maybe there's other things in your life that are unique to you that you have to take and put on the cross in your life. Take up your cross. Don't take up Jesus' cross. We can't take up his cross. And you can't take up mine. Take up your cross. It's in these times of self-denial and sacrifice and our willingness to die to our fleshly desires so that we can be adopted into the family of God. That we can be adopted. Romans 8, 17. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we also may share in his glory. Taking up your cross isn't a passive activity. Every day, every day you have to take up your cross. Find that season of death. Do what you have to do. And then enjoy the abundance that comes as a result. This morning, I I know this may be difficult. And I hope you can understand this word. I hope this makes sense today. It's helped me greatly as I went through it this week, because I was really struggling with this because I'm thinking, man, I, this is going to be a beat-up message. There's no beat-up here. This is the message of hope. This is a message of abundant living. Because as I learn to do this, then I have life. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this day today. I thank you, Lord, for your graciousness. I thank you for your sacrifice. I thank you, Lord, the way you have gone to the cross for us. You've died once and for all for us that we can have eternal life forever and ever. And I thank you so much for that. And God, I just pray that for those this morning that may be struggling in this area, let them know they're not alone. We all have our cross to pick up. And sometimes we need help carrying our cross. Sometimes we may need to go to our brother and sister and say, would you pray for me? I'm really having a hard time with this issue. I'm having a hard time understanding how to forgive this person or how to deal with this particular temptation in my life. Would you pray with me? And the answer is, of course I'll pray with you. Of course a brother and sister would take your burden with you and intercede for you. So God, I just pray that we would understand that. And I pray, Father, that you would just give us ultimate victory. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
Father, we just thank you now. So, Lord, as we go to our homes and go to our places this week, I pray, God, that the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, would just go with us throughout this week. Just saturate us, that as we go into the world around us, that we carry our cross to them as a way to show them to Jesus' cross. That we are a light under this world, a light under this broken world, this dark and adulterous generation that you've described it as. That we can be that light, that we can be that beacon of hope and love. And that we can share Christ to all those around us, we pray. Bless us. God, give us abundant life. Give us joy and peace and enjoyment as we enjoy what you've given us. But, help, Father, help us to keep our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. Always following God. Always being led by the Spirit as we fight the fight, as we run the race. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be blessed. Greet each other as you go.